Welcome to the Bruins Success Podcast. In today's episode, we get to know public health alumna, Dr. Kristen Choi. Kristen is a psychiatric nurse and assistant professor of nursing and public health at UCLA. She studies health services and policy approaches to promoting mental health among children and adolescents. Her current research projects include studies on adverse childhood experiences, developmental disabilities, and the intersection of homelessness and mental illness. As both a clinician and a scientist, Dr. Choi maintains a clinical practice as a registered nurse at a safety net psychiatric hospital in downtown Los Angeles. In addition to her role at UCLA, Dr. Choi is an investigator with Kaiser Permanente Southern California and an associate director for the UCLA National Clinician Scholars Program. She was the first and only nurse included on the U.S. Forbes 30 Under 30 Healthcare List in 2020 and was recently inducted as a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing. We're excited to represent our illustrious graduate and postdoc alumni with our interview with Kristen. Welcome to the Bruins Success Podcast, Kristen. Glad to have you. Good morning. Thank you for having me on today. Well, we're excited to jump into this uh, conversation with you to learn about how you got to where you are. And so we'd like to hear about your professional journey so far from your undergraduate days to now being a practicing nurse and researcher and teaching at UCLA. What were some of the pivotal moments uh, that led you to where you are now? Sure. You know, I, I think for me, it's been kind of a, um, uh, an unpredictable journey. I, I never thought I would be a nurse, certainly never thought I would be a professor. So um, it's it's interesting to kind of look back at how, how I ended up here. Um, back when I was in high school and thinking about applying to college, I was really into art and music and, and really wanted to do that. But I also really liked math and science and kind of decided uh, at the very, very last minute in my college applications to go ahead and apply to nursing. And I really didn't know much about nursing. Um, I didn't know any nurses, had never been in a hospital myself, but just kind of read about it and thought it seemed like an interesting career at the intersection of science, but also a lot of human connection and opportunity to have meaningful relationships with people. So I um, applied to nursing school and started nursing school at the University of Michigan. And um, when I started, uh, started right away, you know, working in hospitals, seeing patients, I realized pretty quickly in my first year that I didn't actually want to be a nurse after all. And um, what I mean by that is I loved the parts of nursing that had to do with, you know, taking care of people when they were sick, helping people work through really difficult moments and, and you know, the, the relationships that came with being, being a nurse. But I found myself really frustrated with having to work within the healthcare system. Um, I found myself just constantly, you know, wanting to look upstream and questioning why are these patients so sick? Why are they coming here over and over? Why are they facing all these challenges in the healthcare system and accessing care and paying for care? Why are there all these barriers to, to me as a nurse and, and doctors and others being able to practice with patients and just really uh, became really frustrated with those system issues and kind of came to feel like if I worked as a nurse, um, and this is really true for anyone who, who might be thinking about a career as a clinician and medicine, nursing, therapy, anything, uh, in a lot of ways, you have to work within that system and it's hard to change it. And, and so I decided that I wanted to do something more upstream where I could kind of tackle those health system problems. So after nursing school, I went on to do a PhD. I uh, was convinced that doing research in science was one way to go upstream and uh, try to make some bigger picture change in healthcare. 
And I started doing research on uh, trauma and stress and how adversity in the lives of children affected their mental health and, and development. And, and I did that also at the University of Michigan. Uh, but interestingly, towards the end of my PhD, again, I had never really practiced as a nurse. Um, I just kind of went right into research because that's what I thought I wanted to do. Um, I had another interesting realization that that actually a lot of people who do science and research in healthcare uh, can sometimes be a little bit out of touch with what's going on in the real world. Uh, it can be really easy for us as professors and researchers to, you know, get caught up with our labs and what we're doing on campus. Uh, but to really lose sight of what's happening in the real world and how our research is being used to really make change for patients if we're not there in the clinical world. So um, I decided to take kind of a step sideways, I guess, and, and start practicing as a nurse during my PhD. Uh, and I've done that ever since, kind of combined a career that is science with also practicing as a nurse. And I found that those two things really inform each other. I, I feel like I can do better research uh, because I see what's happening on the ground in healthcare, the real issues that patients and nurses are facing. Uh, and that helps me, I think, to do, to do better research. Um, and, and vice versa, when I work as a nurse, I'm able to bring the insights I have from research uh, to practice. And um, doing those things together has really been uh, a pleasure and um, a really interesting way, I think, to try to forge a career trying to make change in healthcare. That's fantastic. Just to hear that you made that step to the side to try to um, take on, you know, being a practicing nurse. And what are some of the specific things that maybe that you've learned through, you know, practicing and, you know, dealing with people in that regard that informed your research? Was there something that shifted, you think, or did it help even cement some of the research that you had prior um, yeah, yeah, it no, it, it really makes a difference to see the, those real world challenges. I, I'll give you a couple of examples. So one is that a lot of times when we do research on health, um, we will have ideas for maybe interventions or treatments or drugs, things that we want to test, and we'll test them and, and find that we work, they work and, and then want to go implement them in clinical care. But often on the research side, once we find out that a program or a treatment, a therapy, something works, uh, we kind of stop there. We, we feel like after we've done the research and maybe published the data, our job is done. And, and then we just leave the data out there for people to pick up if they want to. But, but the problem is that often those insights from research don't ever make it into the practice space. Um, sometimes that's because practicing clinicians are busy. They might not have time to be reading research journals or um, really have the resources to access that information. But two, often the kinds of interventions and programs that we study and research are additive. Uh, and what I mean by that is they are additional tasks or programs or treatments. This is especially true in, in the mental health space that we wanna add on to tell nurses or doctors, we found that this thing works and so you should do these additional things. But when I think about what it's like to be a nurse, um, how busy we are, how, how our entire days are just absolutely packed uh, with trying to take care of patients, you know, the idea that we add more things on to our jobs is really difficult. Um, there's a point where you're kind of at capacity and it doesn't work to have these additive solutions. And so I think a lot about how can we make, um, make changes in healthcare that might be a, a little bit more disruptive or a little bit more systems level and really think how the things that we're studying in research, how are they gonna fit into clinical care? And how are we gonna make these work so they're not, they're not just adding to the burden that busy clinicians already have? And, and those kinds of insights, I think, um, I, I really think about a lot because I know what it's like to be working as a nurse. 
Another example I'll give you is that we also sometimes in research, again, come up with our ideas uh, at universities like UCLA and you know, study things that we want to study. But sometimes the research that we do can also be really out of touch with what patients want. Um, there's a really long history in research, unfortunately, uh, of again, a lot of researchers doing studies and really focusing on us, the researchers, you know, telling you the subjects what to do on gathering data, testing treatments, and then kind of moving on from, from people without really taking time to think about are the solutions that we're studying really what people want and need. Uh, and I think it's also helped me think much more about how I can integrate patient and community perspectives in my research. Um, I'm a strong believer that research is best when it's informed by communities. Mm -hmm. And uh, it does make a difference to bring those people into the research process early on. And so mm -hmm. I think getting to interact with patients, uh, getting to see how often they are left out of care decisions and research priorities also makes me think much more about how to integrate patient voice, community perspectives in my work uh, from mm -hmm. the very beginning. Yeah, and that's your perspective is very evident in the type of research that you've that you've taken on from, you know, looking at nurse the impacts of mass shootings on nurses to, you know, trauma on children um, and even, you know, the impacts of the COVID pandemic on mental health. You're real it's it's totally evident that you're looking at all sides of the system and thinking about not just what people are confronted with when they're in the emergency room or just in front of a doctor or nurse, but you're looking at all sides of it. It is it's challenging, I think, to kind of inhabit those multiple roles. I, I think mm -hmm. that, you know, the the kind of brain or, or hats I have to put on when I'm working on science are a little bit different than what it takes to be working as a nurse. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think that one of the beauties of um, working in clinical science is that you can kind of inhabit multiple roles and you get to have the benefit of, of multiple perspectives, you know, to inform the work that you do. Yeah. And you make it so, so human and so applicable. It's definitely, mm. uh, it's very evident to see why you've been recognized for your work. Um, I do have a question. I see that you've had some research on uh, how the COVID pandemic has impacted mental health. We are in such an interesting time. Do you have any um, kind of findings that you think would be helpful for our listeners as they continue to move forward um, during this time? Sure, absolutely. You know, COVID has been a really difficult time for mental health for, I'm going to say just about everyone. Um, it's been yeah. a very stressful time for, for a lot of us. And, you know, there are a couple of things I've learned from research that I, I think I would share with your listeners. So um, I think one of the few bright spots in terms of mental health to come out of COVID is that because we all had such a universal experience of, of fear, of stress, of isolation, of sadness, I felt like I saw in my clinical practice a lessening of stigma around mental health. Um, there is still so much stigma around mental health and asking for help in the United States. Mm -hmm. I think people see it as a sign of weakness, as a personal failure. And so often um, it takes a really long time and things have to get really, really bad before people will take the time to reach out and ask for help. But I think that's something about COVID and this universal experience of, of stress and difficulty uh, meant that a lot more people were open to asking for help and talking about mental health uh, in a way that uh, I could tell they, they didn't have the same shame and stigma associated with it that I saw before. I tend to work mostly with teens, and I especially saw this um, with their parents. I think teens today are actually pretty good at talking about mental health. 
Um, but I do see a generational divide where often their parents are not. But this, this really changed during COVID. I think a lot more parents were open to understanding the struggles that their kids were going through. And, and there was a lessening of stigma. So, you know, I think the takeaway there is that for anyone who might be struggling with mental health, um, you know, I, I think that it's so important to reach out and ask for that help uh, and to not let stigma and shame get in the way, especially if it's related to COVID, because we did see, you know, so many people that that were in a place where they needed help. One of the other things I think that became clear during COVID was our mental health system has been very broken for a very long time before COVID. And I think that those system issues really came to light in a new way during COVID. So, you know, for context in the US, it's estimated that about one in five children and about one in five adults have some kind of mental or behavioral or emotional disorder. So that's a lot of people. Um, but most studies show that only about half of those people ever get treatment. We have very, very severe shortages of mental health care providers. Uh, that's psychiatrists, therapists, psychiatric nurses. And often our mental health workforce is not distributed fairly in our population. A lot of mental health care workers are concentrated in big cities and urban centers, uh, but people really don't have access. So um, I think that it also just really showed where those gaps are in mental health care access and providers. And I, I think it's a really good opportunity for people to think about careers in mental health. Um, there's so much potential uh, for people who might want to be, again, psychologists, nurses, physicians, uh, to forge a really interesting career in, in mental health. And so um, I think that that's another potential takeaway if, for people who might be um, interested in, in understanding more about these issues uh, and helping to be part of the solution and making mental health care more accessible for people. Thank you for that. That was, you know, I think, especially with your area of expertise, you know, you work a pediatric psychiatric nurse. Do you have any uh, thoughts for parents? I know that their children and worrying about their children and how the pandemic is impacting them mentally. Um, you know, they think a lot about mm -hmm. that and are mm -hmm. trying to help or prevent their children from, you know, being more impacted than they are, do you have any thoughts on, you know, for parents as they navigate these waters and, you know, model behavior for their children or even encourage their children, like you're saying, to talk about how they feel? Um, yes, we have sure, teenagers sure. who are really good at talking about their emotions, but children are in a different kind of space too. Yeah, definitely. You know, for parents, I think the big things are really being there to support your kids having open conversations with them about the stressors that are going on, you know, especially when it comes to COVID. Uh, kids are smart. They see things, they hear things, they know what's going on in the world. And I think being willing to have open conversations about those things is really important for families and helping kids to know um, that, that they are safe, that even though there are things out there in the world that are scary, whether that's COVID or changes at school or, or other things, um, that, you know, their parents are going to be there for them and that they're going to do their best to make them safe. I, I think those are really the big things. The other piece kind of to what I mentioned earlier is just, again, not being afraid to reach out for help. If kids are struggling, uh, whether that's with anxiety, depression, anything else, COVID-related or not COVID-related, um, it's okay to ask for help for those things. It's not a sign of weakness on the part of your kids or on the part of you as parents, uh, just to bring those concerns to a healthcare provider. So would also encourage families to reach out if there is a concern uh, because there is help out there. And, and again, I think that we have to really reframe uh, this thinking that when there are mental health problems we encounter, that it's a personal failure or a parent failure, uh, because they're really not. They're, they're things that just, just happen. No, thank you for that. Well, I did want to pivot a little bit because you yourself sure. have a very interesting 
um, you know, career journey. And so I wanted to learn, dig into that a little more. Um, so you were at University of Michigan for your bachelor's and your PhD. What brought you yes. to UCLA? It seems like from what I can see, it seems like you took a little bit, you did, you did your master's in more policy work, but what led you to choose UCLA to continue that work? And now you're actually an assistant professor here. Well, one part of it was the weather. I was pretty excited to move out of uh, Michigan to come to Southern California. We do have good weather here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was a pretty big draw. But, but no, I guess there's one more sort of pivot I had in my career that I'll share that really led to me coming to UCLA. When I was at Michigan doing my PhD, I mentioned that I was doing research on uh, traumatic stress and adversity and mental health for kids. A lot of the research that I was doing was very clinical in nature. And what I mean by that is that I was investigating kind of how these uh, experiences and exposures and specific disease processes operated in individual people and how it affected individual people and their mental health. But this focus on individual people and individual clinical care, I think still fell a little bit short of my vision for wanting to do research on health systems. Uh, again, I, I think that doing research um, on uh, mental health disorders definitely felt like a step more upstream than working to respond to mental health problems in practice. But I still wasn't quite doing work at the level I wanted to be. I really wanted to be studying healthcare systems and healthcare policies and working to make those better for people um, at, at, a, at an even bigger level. So I came to UCLA because they had a fellowship program. Um, we, we still have it actually called the National Clinician Scholars Program. And this was an interprofessional fellowship for doctors and nurses uh, to learn how to do health services and policy research. So again, rather than studying maybe individual people, thinking about how do we study whole health systems or maybe whole sets of health systems uh, to try to uh, improve conditions and make them better. So I came to UCLA to do that fellowship. While I was here, I did a master's degree in health policy and management at the Fielding School of Public Health, uh, which was great. I, I really enjoyed my time over there at Fielding and um, now I'm, I'm a professor there as well. So, so that was really, um, really a wonderful experience. But um, yeah, I came to UCLA because I wanted to learn how to do that system level research. And then the other reason was because I, I think that California has some really unique opportunities for mental health. Um, there is a lot of mental health policy and mental health resources, specifically in LA County, that are pretty unique. I think LA is always a place that has innovated in, in the healthcare space and in the mental health space. And it felt like a really, um, a really rich environment to come to to try to do research because there were so many innovations that were already happening. Now, that being said, LA also has, you know, as I mentioned earlier, a number of problems with mental health. We suffer from the same problems of, you know, not enough mental health providers and facilities and beds and, and have problems too in our system. But um, I was really excited by the opportunity to work in this local context, uh, which is what brought me here to UCLA and, and why I still work here now. So what does your typical day in the life look like for you? You're a multi-hyphenate, you know, practitioner, nurse, professor, researcher. What does that actually practically look like in your day-to-day? -day? Yeah, you know, every day I'd say is a little bit different. Um, I would say that right now I spend most of my time doing research. Uh, the second most time I would say I spend teaching nursing students at UCLA. And then the third uh, smallest piece would be practicing clinically. And so those things really shuffle on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, you know, I often will spend my Monday through Friday weeks working on research and teaching, uh, giving lectures, grading student papers, you know, working on my studies, meeting with my research team, uh, those kinds of things. 
And then my practice as a nurse, I tend to fit in a little bit more on evenings, weekends, kind of whenever I, um, I can fill in when, when they need help. Uh, and, and that does often end up being on weekend times just because during the week I'm, I'm often here at UCLA. Um, that's something that's in flux. Again, it, it changes all the time. Uh, I may do a half clinical day here and there if I need to. And um, again, that's one of the beauties of this job is that there's multiple parts and, and they can all be flexible. Um, but but that's also why I really like it because it's dynamic and, and every day is a little bit different. When I do have um, full clinical days, I, I do work some 12 hour shifts as a nurse. You know, like I said, I think I have to really put on a different hat on those days and really step away from my systems research brain to thinking at a much more human level about how do I take care of the patients in front of me and help them make progress towards their goals. It, it really is a different kind of thinking. Um, but I enjoy that. And, and I think it's really good, again, to kind of go back and forth and be a part of both of those perspectives. Um, outside of my work, um, I really enjoy cooking and I love doing outdoor things. I'll usually go for a run or a hike in the mornings before I get started on work uh, and definitely uh, try to make time for cooking as well, which I, I really enjoy. Well, are you cooking anything uh, extra yummy these days? Trying anything new? You know, I actually have been trying to get into learning to cook some Korean food. I'm, I'm half Korean. And it's like a skill I just never really picked up when I was uh, growing up. So I've been trying some Korean recipes and that's been a lot of fun. That's great. I did have a question about your research. You know, you know, you mentioned a big part of your day is typically in research. Um, you know, do you, how do you go about, you know, choosing your next topic? You know, how do you go about um, kind of putting together, you know, all, all your findings and deciding on your team? Um, and are you working on anything in particular now? Sure, sure. So um, well, mental health research is interesting. There's just so many issues that I see in practice that I think would be important to study and research that it is definitely sometimes hard to choose just one. But right now I have a couple of projects going. I usually try to have, you know, two or three at a time just so that um, it's, it's manageable and I can dedicate the time wow. I need to to them. Um, my main project that I'm working on right now is focused on uh, therapy for kids with autism and other developmental disabilities, uh, really taking a look at who gets therapy, how those services are delivered, and where there might be disparities in care. So that's a big study that I'm working on right now. I'm also doing some work uh, looking at adverse childhood experiences and really thinking about looking at adversity that might happen to kids out in their communities. Uh, we've done research for a lot of years on child abuse and neglect and adversity that happens to kids in their homes and families. And we know that that kind of trauma is very detrimental to kids and their health and development. But, um, you know, as I see the stressors that kids and teens are facing in my practice, there are so many ways that kids are exposed to serious stress and adversity outside of their homes. Uh, they are dealing with things like bullying, uh, cyberbullying, uh, sometimes living in neighborhoods that might have a lot of violent crime. Uh, there are kids that are dealing with racism. I see a lot of kids, especially in LA, that have uh, family members who have been deported and, and other immigration challenges. And so I'm really interested to also study these community adversity experiences uh, and looking at how those issues affect uh, the mental health of kids. The final one I'll mention is that um, I've also started doing some work at the hospital where I work as a nurse, uh, looking at the intersection of homelessness and mental illness. Uh, I think anybody listening to this podcast who's spent time um, in, in Westwood and around LA knows that unfortunately we have a very serious homelessness problem here. 
uh, and that there are a lot of gaps in mental health care for people who are homeless. So we're also looking at that issue, um, looking at how we can uh, use mental health care as sort of a linkage point to connect people to longer term options for housing and treatment, and then also how we can better identify people that might be living on the streets uh, who are most in need of mental health treatment. That's fantastic. I have a question in regards to your work. You know, you mentioned looking at the system and looking, you know, upstream as to where some of these issues are stemming from. When you have your research and you have these uh, findings, do you often go to present them to policymakers or is it presented to think tanks or, you know, policy agencies that could be impacting how people create policy moving forward? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I definitely think about this question a lot. How do I get these findings to, you know, the stakeholders that that really need them? Um, policy is an interesting issue because, you know, I think in my ideal world, um, we would hope that when we find things in research, uh, we find evidence of policies that should or should not exist, or maybe solutions that should or should not be implemented in policy you know, it'd be great if there was a one-to-one -one relationship between evidence that we find and policy actions that take place. Yeah. Uh, but of course, we all know that that's not how policy goes. Um, there's a lot of other uh, drivers of how policy gets made and not everything that might be a high priority to me in policy is necessarily gonna be a high priority to policymakers. Yeah, so, you know, um, yeah, it, it's, it's difficult to line those things up. So, so the way I think about it is one, I do try really hard that when I have research findings and I publish them to make sure I think about how to make those findings accessible uh, to anyone who, who might find them. I will often do um, a policy brief or an op-ed along with a research article. I will almost always uh, put my findings on my public Twitter and make sure that I'm thinking about translating the key points from our research findings uh, in a way that's gonna be accessible to people. The other piece I think is just paying attention to when there is a policy window and when there might be opportunity to share those findings when it does happen to be a priority. I um, I once had a mentor describe a policy window to me as, you know, if you can imagine a, a speeding bullet train that has one open window and you have a paper airplane that you need to throw through that one open window, uh, that's kind of what policy opportunities look like. There are times in society when something for some reason might become a priority and might be on the radar of policymakers. And I think that it's really important for us as scientists to be prepared to act when those policy windows do open up. A really good example of this, I think, is COVID. You know, during the coronavirus, um, I think that there were a lot of um, policy issues related to nurses, to nurse uh, practice conditions and nurse working conditions that were policy issues that, again, had been around for a long time, but people just hadn't really prioritized before. But during COVID, I think a policy window really opened up to think about how we approach nursing practice and nursing working conditions and how we can make sure that our health workforce is uh, supported in the way that it needs to be. And so even if there isn't a policy window open just this minute for everything that I care about, um, I do often think about how I can keep an eye out for those opportunities if they do arise in the future. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's also super important for our listeners to know Oftentimes it is about the opportunity and the timing that comes with that. You know, we always, all of us are working on different things where we think, oh, this is going to make such a big impact. But oftentimes there really is that window is that's when the opportunity strikes and being ready for that window is so important. That's a great Absolutely. analogy. Your mentor said the speeding bullet in a paper airplane. Um, <laughs> it it just sometimes it's feels like that for sure. You're just like, 
please, maybe it'll go now. And, you know, sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. Totally, totally. Uh, you know, it seems maybe a little bit demoralizing when you think about it that way. Uh, but, you know, I think that those opportunities do do come up, even if we sometimes have to wait for them for, for some time. Yeah. Well, I do, you know, I know that it seems from my, from, I read the Daily Bruin article about you, it seems like you come from a big family and oftentimes you shared that your family has also um, had an impact on your work or your desire to be in, in nursing. Um, but also it looks like you've impacted your family as well. You have a lot of nurses now in your family. Were you a big part of that? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely would say that that my family has, I think, uh, played a big role in getting to me to this point. Uh, even though I didn't always want to be a nurse, uh, my my parents were always um, really involved in their community, always really pushed all of us to be involved in service in the community. And I think um, really just raised us to have an orientation to thinking about how we could um, how we could integrate service into our lives and really work to make um, the world around us a better place. So I think that that thinking is really what led me to nursing, even though I didn't always know it when I was younger. And yeah, no, it's it's great to see now that I have a couple of other nurses in my family. Um, it's wonderful to have them and, uh, you know, to get to see their careers and and to have some people who, who understand uh, the nursing world, uh, you know, from a real world perspective there. Yeah, I can imagine you might have like conversations together just to debrief and uh, vent and talk about what you, you know, what you're going through. How do you take care of yourself, you know, with managing a, it's a lot of heavy, heavy topics and research and diving deeper into these heavy topics? How do you take care of yourself? You mentioned you cook, um, but how do, what do you do for self-care? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it's a good question. I, I think that this is uh, something that I am constantly, um, you know, working on. Uh, it's a work in progress. I'm not something I, I'd say I'm perfect at. But, you know, I, I will share for your student listeners, back when I was a nursing student and also when I was in grad school, I think that I really um, felt like uh, I just needed to pour my whole self, all of my energy into school, uh, into being perfect, into getting perfect grades, into just absolutely being at the very top when it came to school. And I'm sure a lot of um, current UCLA students listening can relate to this uh, from my experience with students. UCLA students are extremely driven and, and just so smart and talented and often have that same drive, I think, to want to pour everything in, into school. Um, and that, I think, uh, I realized when I was in grad school was actually not a sustainable way to go about um, learning and, and certainly not a sustainable way to go about making change in the world. Um, I have found myself really burnt out at different times in my life. And, you know, when you're running on empty you lose your ability to, to be able to give anything to people around you. That's especially true if you're working in healthcare. You know, you're going to encounter people when they are um, sick and suffering and vulnerable. And it's a real red flag when you're running on empty and don't have any compassion left to give to your patients. So um, I think the first piece is just recognizing that, you know, kind of running at a thousand percent all the time is actually not the way to make change in the world. And even if I feel like, you know, there's, there's a lot on me or a lot I'm trying to accomplish, I actually do better work uh, if I'm rested and recharged and have made that time to make sure that I'm coming from a place where I'm full and I have something to give. Uh, that was a hard lesson to learn, but I think one that I really came, came to realize when I was in grad school. So yeah, I try to really prioritize the things that are meaningful to me and that I know could help me feel recharged. I mentioned that I really love doing outdoor things. I love hiking, running, trail running, backpacking, rock climbing, 
all, all those things. And so I do try to um, get out to do those things a couple of times a week. I usually try to plan a couple of longer backpacking trips every year and, and just be sure to spend time outdoors. Um, cooking is another one that brings me a lot of joy. And I love to, um, when I cook, listen to audiobooks and podcasts. And uh, that's something I, I try to make time for as well. And then I think maybe the most important one is also just having connection with other people. You know, that that is just so powerful. And of course, you know, our families, our partners, our friends, those connections are meaningful. But I found that some of my most recharging connections I have are with other people who work in healthcare or in nursing or with other people who might be um, researchers and are kind of fighting the same fight as me. Uh, it's really, really powerful to, um, to connect with those people, to have people who understand your experiences in your life. And I think that finding that community has also been um, a really powerful tool for, for recharging when, uh, when I do feel like I'm in that place of being burnt out. That's, that's great. So thank you for your um, strategies and to sharing, you know, how you take care of yourself. I know for our students, you're absolutely right. You know, they want to get good grades, they want to do well. And, um, but you, you remind us you, you can't be running on empty and then pouring into other people and doing your best work. So thank you. For absolutely. That. Um, I did, I didn't want to, you know, go without go through this interview without mentioning, you know, congratulations, you were named um, uh, a Forbes 30 under 30, uh, you were on their list and the sole nurse on their healthcare list. So congratulations. Um, Thank you. That's such a huge honor. And um, often I know um, people, you know, really want to make an impact. What was that like um, to get that kind of notice that you were on the list? And, you know, was there any sort of reaction from your nursing community or your peers after you heard that you were on the list? Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and thank you. Thank you very much. It was a huge honor. And um, I, I felt especially honored to be included on the Forbes list uh, in 2020. You know, Forbes, uh, to my knowledge, had never recognized a nurse before. I think that historically, they, they recognize right. a lot of people that, you know, work in healthcare startups and in the tech world, uh, and less so the, the frontline clinicians. So it was really um, an honor to be able to represent nurses, uh, when nurses were doing so much for everybody else. Uh, and they had other uh, physicians and residents, medical students, other people that maybe hadn't traditionally list, been listed in Forbes that year as well. And so it was it was a huge honor to represent nursing in that way. Um, I think I had, uh, you know, uh, most nurses were really, really supportive. Um, that was that was really great. I had a lot of younger nurses reach out to me and, you know, tell me that they they never thought they would, you know, had heard of a nurse being on a list like this and that, you know, they uh, they saw it as a real opportunity and inspiration. And of course, that was a huge honor and really meaningful to hear um, from those younger nurses that um, it maybe opened up, I don't know, new possibilities for them to think about how they could make a difference as a nurse um, outside of, of patient care. I did have some people um, that I think had more negative reactions uh, in nursing. Um, really? I had some people who, yeah, yeah, interestingly. That's crazy. Um, yeah, some people I think that just felt like, um, essentially being recognized for your age is is silly right like you can make a difference in any age and and we shouldn't just be glorifying people because they're young which i that's a fair point you know i, I agree to some extent you can make a difference at any age and it really doesn't matter if you're 20 or 30 or 80 uh you you can make a meaningful difference uh and those comments though were, were few and far between i think for the most part people were um were really supportive i'll also just share with your listeners um you know, I, I think for uh, awards and opportunities like this, I didn't learn about this until pretty recently in my career um, that, you know, I think it's really important that we 
play a role in our own self-advocacy for people that might be underrepresented or come from underrepresented professions. Um, I, at the time, the Dean of the School of Nursing, uh, Linda Sarna, she nominated me for, for the Forbes list. And, uh, you know, I'm really grateful to her for, uh, for recognizing me and helping me with that nomination. Um, but I think since, as I've talked to more people that get, you know, big awards or named on lists like this in many kinds, that it involves a lot of self-advocacy too, as well as advocacy for our peers. And um, I think that's something that often we're hesitant to do, uh, to want to put ourselves out there or nominate ourselves for things. Uh, but I just learned that, that that plays a big role in getting to that place. I'll also share that, you know, I was nominated for the list first in 2019 and I didn't make it. Um, and then the next year uh, applied again, and that's when I actually was on the list. And so also that uh, there, there are often many attempts and failures behind the successes that we see, uh, and that that's really a, a normal part of the process. Thank you for sharing that. I think that that's incredibly important for all of our listeners, whether they're students or alumni, that it's not because of these lists or recognition that that deems you to be a success in your area or just in life. Um, all of this is a, a cherry on top for the already good work that people are doing or just existing. You know, I think that, totally. that often yeah. too, people, you know, are chasing titles and notoriety or recognition, but that's, that's not the meaning of why we do what we do or the purpose. Um, but I guess that actually leads me to my last question, which is what we end most, all of our podcast episodes with is, you know, what does success mean to you and how have you defined it in your own life? Yeah, I, I think this is another one that I still would consider to be uh, a, a journey I'm on, something that I don't have a, a totally perfect de definition for yet. But, um, you know, I really try to think about success as uh, having an impact on people and their mental health in the real world. Um, you know, when you work as a scientist, it's really easy to um, to set your sights on goals that actually fall short of that real world impact. Uh, we're often really incentivized as scientists and researchers to, to do research, to get grants, to publish our findings, but to stop there once findings are published and to not take that extra step to think about how do we actually make sure that our findings translate to action in the real world and seeing that we as scientists have a responsibility to help with that translation uh, to make the findings accessible and digestible to people and making sure that they get to the right stakeholders and that we are looking out for those policy windows uh, when we we need to put our science forward. So I, I think that that's really how I, I define impact at this point is as you know that real world impact more so than the kind of scientific markers. Uh, and it's something that I also I think a lot about, um, you know, how how my work is really going to affect real patients. Great. Thank you for that. Um, and now I have a couple of uh, just fun, rapid fire questions for you. Um, okay. What is a great book or article you've read recently? Yeah, um, I uh, recently read a book called The Engagement. Uh, I'm blanking on the author right now. It's a book about the history of uh, the struggle to legalize same-sex marriage. Uh, it's really interesting history. Um, I I learned when reading the book that you know the the issue of marriage was not always necessarily the center of the struggle for LGBT equality, um, but that it kind of for a lot of reasons just just rose to the top and ended up being the one that made it to the Supreme Court. So that was a great book called The Engagement. Uh, really interesting history there. Love it. Um, okay, what's your favorite place on campus? Uh, my favorite place on campus. Um, 
I'm going to say it's probably the Jan steps. Uh, yeah. I'm a big, I'm a big runner. And so I run through campus and around campus like all the time. And I often will run up and down the steps uh, early in the morning. And, uh, you know, I always just love getting to see that view of the whole campus from there, uh, getting to see, you know, the mountains around UCLA. And um, I don't know, I just, to me, it always feels like kind of the, the heart of campus and a place that really reminds me of why UCLA is such a special place. So that, that's a place I really enjoy on my runs. Totally agree. Not only is it inspiring, but it also is you know, it'll, it'll kick your butt too. If, as you're running up those stairs, so good, uh, good pick, good pick. Okay. And then last uh, is what is your favorite UCLA memory? Yeah. Um, so my favorite UCLA memory is actually one that I had when I was, um, the first time I ever came to California actually was when I came to UCLA to do an interview for the postdoc that, you know, eventually brought me here and led me to locate my research career here. I didn't know anything about California or LA. Like I said, I had never set foot here before in my life and I didn't know where to stay or where to go. I didn't know anything. So I just booked an Airbnb in Westwood and you know flew in. And the night before my interview, I just kind of looked and um, realized like I was staying near Westwood Boulevard and it seemed like I could follow that road up into campus and, and just wanted to check it out. So it was late at night, um, but I walked up Westwood Boulevard uh, all the way through, you know, Westwood, uh, past Reagan and up into campus. And I really remember um, pausing when I got to about Reagan Hospital and just feeling like, wow, this this campus is a really, really special place. Um, it just felt like a place that was different than anywhere I'd been before. And I could just really um, sense there was a lot of energy and opportunity that I was really excited about. So, um, you know, again, that I ended up coming to UCLA because of that interview and, and the fellowship. Uh, and I'm so glad that that I did. And I always just remember that walk uh, again. I had no idea where I was going, but just really feeling the energy even then. Um, and, you know, feeling so lucky that I get to keep working here now. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. You are not the only person to have shared with us that, you know, they have felt that energy or that opportunity when they first arrived. And I want to be the first on behalf of UCLA to thank you for all you've done during your time here. Um, you know, not only now teaching and impacting our nursing students and uh, public health students, but, you know, our Los Angeles community as well. And just this work and research you're doing is transformative. And, you know, I know that your different opportunity windows are going to be there soon and you're just primed to take it on. And um, thank you for taking the time to share with us about your journey and also just giving us really sage and grounded advice. I think, um, you know, this is only the beginning of, I think, what is a long and um, storied career for you. So we're so excited. Thank you for taking the time to come on our, come on our podcast and you know, repping the excellence of our graduate students and postdocs. Um, it's amazing to see all that you've done here at UCLA. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Many thanks to Kristen for sharing her research and insights with us. For this episode's career tip, we have a fun one from alumna Alexa Friedman, class of 2011 and university recruiting manager at Databricks. Alexa says, keep a career journal. This helps you identify what you like, what you don't like, and where you want your career to go next. It's also helpful when you're preparing for interviews or performance reviews to have all of your experiences documented. Great tip, Alexa. This is a great strategy for, uh, for students and alumni, no matter where you are in your career. Your experiences and your wins, big and small, should be celebrated and noted. 
And by capturing it, you can refer to it and see how you've grown over time. So thanks to Alexa for this great reminder. Be sure to follow the Bruin Success Podcast however you listen to podcasts. You can follow our UCLA Alumni Career Engagement Team on Instagram and Facebook. And be sure to check out all of our resources on our Alumni Association page at www.alumni.ucla.edu. Thanks for listening, Bruins.